Well, today we start phase three of our journey of figuring out how to have a closer relationship with God. First two phases of that were looking at two of the vital tools that we need in our spiritual tool bag in order to be able to connect with God. One of those was prayer, which we looked at in the month of September. And the second is how to know God's will, how to be in alignment with what God wants for your life, which we looked at in in the month of October. And now we turn on to phase three. And phase three is, is really just focused simply on who is it that we're supposed to know? Right? I mean, we're, we're, we're going to be on this journey of trying to get to know Jesus. Because if we're going to be in a relationship with God, it means that we are to be in a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to try to spend the next 20 plus weeks, right up till Easter, maybe just a little bit after, looking at who is this Jesus that we're supposed to know. And we're going to use a book out of the Bible that for a long, long time was neglected by the church. It's called The Gospel of Mark. And for literally, for, for almost the first 1,800 years of Christian history, from the time of Jesus up until the 1800s, maybe even closer to the beginning of the 1900s, the church pretty much just ignored the gospel of Mark. Immediately they knew, they could see in it that God was the one who was speaking through its words. So it belonged in the Bible. It was the canon, right? It was God's inspired message through this individual. So they stuck it right in the Bible. But they didn't study it for very much. And the reason why is that everything in the Gospel of Mark, you can find either in Matthew or Luke. 90% of the Gospel of Mark is included either in Matthew or in Luke. And literally almost word for word in each of those two books. But Matthew and Luke also have a lot of other stuff that Mark doesn't include. Things like Christmas, right? Jesus going to the temple when he's 12 and, you know, going down into Egypt and all this other stuff. He just pushes that all aside. So for 1,800 years, the church said, hey, you know what? If we're going to really study a a book about Jesus, we might as well study Matthew or or Luke or John because if we go to Mark, we're going to miss a lot of stuff, right? So they just focused on other things. But about 150 to 200, about 200 years ago, Scholars figured out that Mark was the very first gospel written. It's the granddaddy of them all, right? And so all of a sudden now say, hey, man, let's look at this because here we have the clearest expression or the first expression of what it is the church had to say about Jesus that led to the world being changed through faith in him. And so that's the study we're going to engage on. And our the very first verse is, is where I kind of want to jump off a little bit, and then we'll continue through the first 15 verses of the Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab it. And you know what? You, you know, if, you, if there's a bookmark around, you can stick it in here, because we're going to be in these pages for the next 20, 20 plus weeks, right? And uh, so and, and this page, if you're using one of the Bibles that's up underneath your chair, this first page of the Gospel of Mark is found on page 845. It's the second book of the New Testament with Matthew being up front. And we're going to take a look at the first 15 verses of Mark today. But we need to start with some beginning things. The very first verse simply starts with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. (laughs) 
wow, what, what a start, right? And it, it, the very first thing that Mark wants to do for us is to say, you know up front what it took the disciples three plus years to figure out in terms of walking with him. What a lot of people in the world haven't figured out and still trying to struggle with, he's going to tell us right up front, this person, Jesus, who is the anointed one, the Messiah, is the Son of God. But notice that God, Mark starts with the phrase, the beginning. And I, and I think we need to start with some beginning things today. In other words, I think it's always profitable for us when we go into a study like this where we're going to be working our way through a book that we kind of back up and look at some beginning things so that we have this perspective to understand the book, right? I I was really grateful when when I was a kid, I always wanted to play football. And in the era that I was growing up, Pop Warner football always took place on Sunday mornings. And so my parents said, you're not playing because we're going to church on Sunday mornings. Right, And so not only that, it started in the middle of the summer, and they're like, you know what? We go to the lake house right up to Labor Day, so we're not doing football, right? So when I became a freshman in high school, I went out for the freshman football team. And I was so thrilled because I think I was like the only kid who was out for the team that hadn't played football before. You know, I was still figuring out how to put my shoulder pads on, right? You know, and, and we're, we're getting ready to have practice. And I was so grateful that the, the freshman football coach, who was also turned out to be my high school lacrosse coach that I just saw a, a couple of months ago, he, he started out and he pulled a Vince Lombardi, right? You know, he, he started out with saying, first day of practice, he said, boys, this is a football, <laughs> right? You know, and he just started at the very beginning at the basics, like, all right, how do you get in a stance and all that kind of stuff? I think there's real value in that. Some, some of that did not happen with my boys when they started football in high school, and there's parts of the game that they never mastered because of that. So one of the things we need to look at is who is this guy who's writing to us? Who is the author of this gospel? Because even though it's God who is the one who's impressing on the author, which of the keys on the typewriter to print? And they didn't have typewriters. They're writing it out right by hand. You know, he's still using who he is, his personality, his character, to express his truth directly through him to us as God's inspired word. So who is this guy? And there's parts of it is, first of all, we need to, we need to confess up front, like all the other gospels, The four books that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them, none of the books inside the book does the author identify himself. Luke doesn't say, this is Luke writing. There's probably a good reason why Luke didn't say that, because he was a Gentile, right? And a lot of people say, well, you know, you kind of came to the party late. I'm not going to listen to you. John refers to himself as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Matthew doesn't talk about himself at all. Luke at least tells us who he's writing to, this guy Theophilus, or lover of God, and that might be more generic. And Mark Mark doesn't identify himself. But very early on in Christian history, the church identified him as the person as whom we know as Mark, which would have been his Roman or Latin Greek name, who is also referred to sometimes in the scripture as John, which would have been his Hebrew name. Sometimes we want to put those together and call him John Mark, but that would have never really happened, right? You know, so they, he wouldn't have gone by both of those names. In, in the Jewish community, he would have been called John, and in the rest of the world, they would have referred to him as Mark. He would have introduced himself as Mark. And the reason we know that, there's a guy who wrote about 100 years 
after, after Mark did. His name was Papias. He was a church leader. He was a scholar. And, he, and as he was writing about the books that they were using to teach the truth to the church in those days, he referred to this book being written by a guy whose name was John, who was also called Mark. And he tells us a little bit about this guy. So from the very early stages, right, of, of, of Christian history, we know this book was written by this guy by the name of John, who is also called Mark. And it's not something they would have invented because one of the things that Papias tells us is that when Jesus was alive and John was a young man, he was not a follower of Jesus. You probably heard about him. Maybe he went to some of his gatherings. He probably watched a few, fun- a few miracles, that kind of stuff. But he was not a follower after Jesus. So he was not one of the disciples. He probably wasn't even one of the 120, right? He was just, he was just a guy who was kind of like around the fringes, right? And so why would the church say, well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take this book that's not identified, and we're going to take this guy that even though he knew about Jesus and heard a lot about him, and was closely related to people who were walking with Jesus, he didn't really want to have much to do with him when he was alive. Why are we going to assign the book to him? So that gives it this, this sense of authenticity, right? And so John, who is also called Mark, from the earliest stages we know that this is the guy who wrote the gospel, even though he was not a follower after Christ during his ministry. One of the reasons why we're aware of kind of who, who of the fact that he was he, he had some connections with it is some of the people he was related to and also at the very end of the book in chapter 14 verse 51 there's this odd reference to the fact that when the Romans showed up in the garden of Gethsemane there was a young man there who had followed Jesus that night and they tried to arrest them and grab him and he slipped out of his jacket and ran home essentially butt naked can you say that from the pulpit? But he, he ran home without any clothes, right? You know, he, he ran home, you know? And so, and, and, and this picture is John saying, that's me. That's me. You know, when push came to shove, even at that moment, I fled. And, and, I, and, and, I, and I wanted to get away from Jesus so bad that I was re- ready to go home without any clothes. You know, and, and, but John had some real connections. We know that in several settings, We know, first of all, that after Jesus' resurrection, and maybe before, but certainly after Jesus' resurrection, the home that he grew up in became a rallying point for the early church. And the reason we know this, and here's a reference for you from Acts chapter 12, if you want to make a note. Some of you remember the story of the apostle Peter. You know, and Peter had... He and John at several different times had come to loggerheads with the religious authorities. And so at one point in time, the religious authorities snapped up James you know, one of the, and, and, and executed him. And because that seemed to please so many Jews at the moment, they grabbed Peter as well. So Peter is he's on death row in the prison. And he's had his last meal because he's supposed to be executed the next morning. And the church is gathered and praying for God to do something, right? And Peter, he's asleep in the prison, right? I don't know if I could sleep the night before I'm supposed to be executed, but right, you know, he, he's, he's asleep in the prison. You know, maybe he's thinking to himself, I'm going to get to go be with Jesus. This is great, you know, and he's just at peace or whatever. But, but as they're praying, God answers their prayer, and an angel shows up to let him out of the prison. 
And he, you know, the door, all that kind of stuff. And he goes in and the angel's trying to, Peter, Peter, wake up. Peter, leave me alone. I'm sleeping. He says, no way we can wake up. So finally he rouses up. He says, you know what? I'm not having a dream. This is really happening. And he walks out of the prison. And the scripture tells us that he went to the home of John, who was called Mark. And he knocked on the door. And a little servant girl came and peeked through the window and went running back in and said, hey, Peter's ghost is outside, right? You know, and so his home was a place where they gathered together, right? And so all through this, he's seeing how God is answering prayer and doing various things and et cetera, and how they're, they're fearful, but at the same time trying to be faithful. And all these dynamics are feeding into John Mark's life. He was also the cousin of Barnabas. We know this from the Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Again, I'm not going to take a moment to read this, but he's, when Paul's doing some, some kind of closing kind of stuff in the midst of that, he lets us know that Mark, who is also called John, was the cousin of Barnabas. We don't know how. We don't know if it was his dad or through his mom or whatever, but he was a cousin of Barnabas. And some of you know that Barnabas was, was an influential person in the life of the early church. He's one of the guys who responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ got his life aligned with God's mission. He was one of the ones in the book of Acts who sold land that he owned and brought the proceeds so the church could have what it needed to minister and serve to people. And he became, along with Paul, the leaders of the very first missionary expedition. When a local church had raised up some people and said, you go to places where the gospel isn't and share it. And they were doing that intentionally and on purpose. And it was Paul and Barnabas who led these things together. So you have these, 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 all these forces that are kind of feeding into John Mark's life, and we get the conclusion that somewhere along the line, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. So much so that when Paul and Barnabas went out on their first missionary journey, John went with them. The author of our gospel went with them. You know, they're, they're taking off, they're the leaders and et cetera, and, and they need some people to be with them and help out with stuff and that kind of stuff. And, and so Mark goes with them. And so, you know, he, he, in, for, in some ways, he, it's kind of like he's enrolled in theology school. But the only problem with Mark is that when they get to Perga, one of the cities that they travel through early on in their journey, he flunks out of theology school. And, and, and he decides to come home. He said, I've had enough of this. I ain't doing this anymore. We, we don't know why. We know that it wasn't just because he was sick or something else, because Paul didn't trust him anymore after that. So it, it was something else going on, but we don't know what it was, right? And so he decides to, to go home in the middle of the trip, and he heads home. And, and you're looking at him now. This is a guy who, while Jesus was alive, didn't really come to him was willing, so ready to get away from Jesus at moments, he was ready to go home naked. And here's a guy who is, who is flunked now out of his first test of ministry. And he's set on the back shelf, so much so the next time when they get ready to go out, Paul, Barnabas wants to take him, right? Barnabas is the encourager. He wants to build him up. He wants to see him restored. And, and Paul says, I ain't taking that guy. I can't trust that guy. We're not dependent upon that guy. And, and, and Paul and Barnabas could not get in sync with one another. And they split. And Barnabas went off this way to Cyprus with Mark. And Paul went off with Silas to revisit the places that they had already been and to go into new places. And the two split. But somehow in the midst of all of that, by God's grace and by transformation of Mark's life, 
and by the ways that God works, and, and the encouragement of Barnabas, Mark, Mark gets restored. So much so that at the end of Paul's life, when he's in prison, he, he, he tells Timothy, hey, and when you come to see me, make sure you bring Mark with you. Because Mark is profitable for me. This is a guy I can depend upon, right? This is a guy who went through the crucible of failure, experienced God's grace, was mentored by somebody who was an encourager, and emerged on the other end as somebody that the Apostle Paul wanted to lean on in the moments when he really needed to lean on somebody. Even more specifically, we have a reference from 1 Peter chapter 5 that, that Peter came to see John, who's also called Mark, as his spiritual son. He, he's, he's closing up his letter at the end of the book of 1 Peter in chapter 5 and that kind of stuff, and he's sending greetings from the church in Babylon. That's a reference to Rome. And he says, you know what, and I send you greetings from my son, Mark. And so here's a guy who not only had earned the trust of Paul, but he had also established this incredible relationship of sonship, if you will. Friend. A lot of people think that Peter was probably the one who brought Mark to faith. And so Peter referred to him as his spiritual son. Now, here's the dynamic that we see going on just a little bit. Paul had been in Rome. We believe he got released, and he traveled again afterwards. This is all after the Jerusalem stuff and the shipwreck and getting bit by a scorpion, all that kind of stuff. He lands up in Rome. The book of Acts closes with him waiting in Rome for his trial before the emperor. And what we understand is he gets released. And he moves on. But shortly after that time, Peter arrives in Rome. And then he is, he's arrested. But in those moments, Mark establishes this relationship with him. And when Peter is executed, God's spirit moves in Mark's life and says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take all the teachings of Peter that come through his eyeballs, and I want you to build them around a loose chronology so the church will have the gift of my truth for centuries to come. And what emerges from that is the gospel that we're getting ready to study. Right? And, and, and it's the very first of the gospels that comes to us. It's an incredible story about this author. And so one of the things where I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll get to that point when we get there. So um, you can tell I'm just a little excited about getting into this book, right? The, 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 this, and so what we think is that this book was written right around 64, 65 A.D., about 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So, right? so, about, so about, that, about 30 years into it, this is what's happening. The gospel's already gone from Jerusalem to Rome. It's an incredible thing. The second thing you really have to ask yourself about this book, at least what I want to deal with this morning, is, is why did he write it? Does he have an agenda? You know, we know that Matthew is trying to present to a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah, right? John is trying to present the, the gospel to the Roman world, to the Greek philosophy of the world, so that Jesus is the Word incarnate, right? Luke is trying to give this orderly account kind of thing. Well, what's Mark's agenda? In some ways, he doesn't really tell us, but our key verse that we started with this morning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really is an indication to us. Mark really has two purposes for what he writes. And, and listen to me. 
for a second. I'm, I know many of you are going to pick up the challenge just to read through the book of Mark over and over and over again. Right? If you read a half a chapter a day, you'll get through the gospel of Mark once a month. You know, read it in the, the Holman Christian Standard the first month. Read it in the New American Standard the second month. Read it, read it in the King James the third month, and etc. Just soak it in over and over again. But as you do that, every single day, ask yourself two questions to flow out of the two purposes that we really see. And the first of those is, he sets out to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God. His agenda is to present what Jesus did and what he taught as evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. He, he, he doesn't deal with the whole birth narrative and all that kind of stuff because his th- thinking is, if you just look at how Jesus lived, what happened in his life, and what he taught and did, if you just look at those things, you will be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's seeking to prove the good news of Jesus Christ as the Son of God simply by telling the story of Jesus. And one of the things you're going to see through the book is that there are multiple places where there's affirmation of the deity of Christ. One of those is going to occur right up front today because heaven's going to speak. So there's there's divine affirmation that comes. On the opposite end of the schedule, the spectrum, on several different occasions, you're going to see where Mark says, and the demons knew that he was the Son of God. So as Jesus is throwing out the demons, the demons are saying, you know, Son of God, don't you know, that kind of thing. And you're going to see that in several places along the way, so that the evil one is even affirming that Jesus is the Son of God. You're going to see this in the confession of the disciples. Right? And, and you're going to, where, where Peter is going to confess later in the book, you are the Christ, the Son of God, right? And his big confession of faith. You're also going to see Romans do it. You're going to see the centurion at the end of it. And when all the stuff takes place and, the, and, and Jesus dies on the cross and the darkness comes, and the th- he's going to, surely this was the Son of God. So as you read through the book, ask yourself today, ask yourself every day, What did I read today that proves that Jesus is the Son of God? It'll be a huge handle for you as you go through this. Rich, rich stuff as you work along. And so we're going to be looking at miracles and some of his teachings and his interactions and that kind of stuff are all the ways that he expresses that he is the Son of God. It's really designed to lead people to faith in Christ. And I pray that that will be our journey either to faith for the first time or a much deeper faith in Christ. Second thing, this goes on here. Mark, I think, through his own experience, right? And then also hearing Peter talk about all the stuff that he had heard. One of the things that he is eager to present, kind of subtly but powerfully, is what does it take to be a follower of Jesus Christ? He, 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 over and over again, he is going to refer to this is what it takes to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's the second great question to really ask yourself, right? Is what, what did, what, each day as you read, ask yourself the question, what in here speaks to me about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And that's going to come up in lots of places, from the rich young ruler to, you know, the faith and belief and trust and all kinds of pieces. He's going to show many things in the midst of all of this as you go through. But isn't it a marvelous thing that here's a guy who really in many ways didn't get in on the movement? 
could have been left on the back shelf, came to the party a little late, if you will, for the group that he was in, then just messed it up royally, right? And then God restores him and uses him to communicate his truth through the generations. And this is the guy who writes to us and say, these are the challenges you're going to face if you're going to follow after Christ. And he lets it speak through the lives of his characters, and, 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 uh, of, the, of the people that he's recording. Now, it's, it's great stuff. And so I, I think that you will, when you use those two questions, what is this telling me about who Jesus is? And what is this telling me about what it means to be a follower of Christ? If you use those two questions to break down your reading every day, the profitability level is going to go way up. It's not going to be just learning some stories. It's going to be learning some lessons about how to really walk in Christ. Now, I want us to dive in to the first 15 verses today. I know our time's getting short because we've done the beginning things. But, but I think we can cover these very quickly and at the same time see the value of Mark doesn't waste any time getting to his agenda of proving who Jesus is and what does it take to be a follower of Christ. Let me read just the first 15 verses. I want to encourage you to follow along, if you will, in your own Bibles and, and uh, that kind of thing. says, the beginning of the gospel, just one little side, we refer to the four books as the gospel. That's not how they would have referred to it, right? When, when you know, you know we, like in the Catholic Church, when they have the reading of the gospel, they're thinking of one of the four books. That's not what Paul means. That's not what Mark means here. He says, he says the beginning of the good news, right, of, of, the, of the profitable, met, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, and there's some intended exaggeration in there, right? You know, it wouldn't be like if you walked through the streets of Jerusalem, there was nobody left in the city. That's not what he means. But John had a massive impact, and, and a huge percentage of people were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. It's really interesting, the Jordan River is so monumental in the activity of God, but it's really such a nondescript river, right? You know, the Assyrian general came, said it, you know, to, to one of the prophets and said, hey, you know, heal me. And he said, I go dip in the Jordan River. And he said, what? We got better rivers than that back where I live. And he's not lying. You know, the, the Jordan River is, le- is like 100 miles long from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. Now, it meanders a lot, so it's probably close to 200. It's never more than 10 feet deep. It only gets to 10 feet deep in flood season. It's not even 100 feet wide. Would you go, would the city of Memphis build a memorial that you could walk through like they did for the Mississippi of the Jordan River? No. Because it's just, it's, but here God's using it in this monumental way. And here's this prophet, John the Baptist, who is working and people going out and they are being baptized by him as they confess their sins. So John, he wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt 
around his waist. You can still get one of those today. He's at men's warehouse or something like that, right? And ate locusts and he ate wild honey. He was preaching, someone more powerful than I will come after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, I take delight in you. The impression you get here that Jesus came up out of the water and he saw the heavens being torn open. He was the only one who saw that. He's the only one who heard the voice, right? And, and this is going to introduce something that John, Mark's going to use over and over again, which is this secrecy motif that the theologians talk about. You're going to see him many times heal somebody and say, hey, don't tell anybody, right? Don't tell anybody. The reason why is because the, 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 the climate was ripe to misunderstand who the Messiah was. And so he's saying, I, I'm not ready to go public until, you know, until I'm ready to go public. And so he says, don't tell anybody. And in this place, it was only, God, it was only, it was only Jesus who heard this. Immediately, one of John's, Mark's favorite terms, he uses the word immediately or straight away in the book of Mark, which is the shortest of the gospel. He uses it as much as Matthew, Luke, and John combined, and he uses it. He, he, he wants the story to move. He says, immediately, right? The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled he was teaching, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. All right, so let me just point out a few things to you today. Let's start out, first of all, with his first purpose, that Jesus really is the good news. He wants to affirm that Jesus is the Son of God who's become one of us, who's going to live among us, die, and be resurrected as a substitute for us, and that this person really is the Son of God, and he is the source of living in the kingdom for eternity. And how does he prove that out of this text? And, and it's interesting. First of all, he says he's affirmed by the prophets. He's affirmed by the prophets. You know, you've got this prediction from Isaiah, this foretelling by God that this person's going to come who's going to be a messenger crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. And the guy who shows up and God uses in that role, the person that God spoke about hundreds of years earlier is a guy by the name of John who is baptizing in the Jordan River. And what does this John have to say about Jesus? There's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. Right? And, and I, 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 I'm not, you know, and, and I, I'm baptizing you guys with water. You know, and you guys have been doing this for a long time. We've had the ceremonial cleansing and all this kind of stuff. You know, but I, I'm baptizing you as a part of, of repentance. Kind of this guy, he's going to baptize you with God's spirit. So right out of the bat, 
You have God's activity in the world through people who have been set aside by God to do his work, and they're saying Jesus is the Son of God. So you have that affirmation right out of the bat. Boy, there's lots of stuff we would love to know, right? I mean, Luke tells us about who John is and how he was born and his ministry and all that kind of stuff. For Mark, that's not necessary to the story, right? We, all I got to prove is that, is that John the Baptist really is a prophet, and this is what he said about Jesus. He said, you think I'm special. There's one coming that's off the charts because he's the son of God. Right into it. He's right in. Second thing is he tells us that Jesus was, had this affirmation from God about who he was at the very beginning of his ministry. You know, Jesus goes out to John to be baptized. And this is one of those times when we see that kind of where, that Mark is writing right up front, right? He's one of the early guys because some questions hadn't really started yet, and they want to get answered later. Because one of the questions that got developed over the next 30 years after Mark wrote was, why did Jesus get baptized? He didn't have any sins to repent of. So why was he baptized by John the Baptist? And actually, Mark, Matthew and some of the others tried to explain what was going on there. For Mark, that's irrelevant. This is just the occasion where the heavens open up and God himself, the Father, affirms that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the only role it plays for Mark is that Jesus, straight out, right? Third thing, he goes into the desert to be tempted. I mean, and he, what does he do here? Two verses. Matthew, it's half a chapter. All the individual temptations and going up to the peak of the temple and all that kind of stuff. For, for Mark, that stuff's not necessary to the story. Here's what you need to know. Jesus passed the test. Adam failed the test. Jesus passed the test. Adam failed the test. Jesus passed the test. And the place where people got tested, it seemed like, in God's activity was in the desert. So he goes out into the desert. He goes through the period of testing. And he passed the test. And that affirmation of passing the test is that the angels came to care for him. So right out of the bat, Mark is saying, this is the Son of God. You've got some stuff to learn as you read the rest of this book. But he's not done there. He also tells us what does it really take to be a follower of Christ. He hints at it in John the Baptist's message. He says, repent and be baptized as a part of your confession of sins. But Jesus picks up on that a little bit and expands it. Look, look at verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, right, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news, right? And here is the good news. Here is the message, right? He says, the time is fulfilled and God's kingdom is now available to you. What does it take to step into the kingdom? You've got to repent and you've got to believe in the good news. You've got to repent and you've got to believe in the good news. And the good news is that Jesus is the Son of God. So right out of the bat, Mark tells us, what does it take to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Right out of the bat. And we, we, we do repent. We make it all, 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 in, in that terminology, probably all that Jesus meant by it, all that John the Baptist meant by it was, you know what, just turn your life back towards God. 
you know, the whole change of thinking, all of this and that kind of stuff. He's just saying, repent means to change. Just, you're going this way, just turn and start moving towards God, right? We're moving this way, he says, just start moving towards the cross, right? Just, just turn back towards God. Change and start moving back towards God and believe in Jesus Christ, the good news. And that invitation, really, that challenge to us stands today, right? You know, you know, um, uh, you know I... I, I I was kind of thinking of playing. You know, I, I, w- I wish I could channel like a Billy Graham says, you know, have you believed in him today? You know, and that kind of stuff. I don't want to mock the, this stuff. But th- this is fundamental stuff, right? This is an opportunity right up front. As God is speaking to us through this person who, who didn't get on board with Christ for, for a long time, who almost blew it out of the water, but God's grace restored him by, and with, along with an encourager and his cousin Barnabas. And now he's being used of God, and he's saying to us, man, turn back to God and believe. Believe. And it's an opportunity for you and I today to turn back towards God. If we've already believed in the past, but we're kind of wandering around a little bit, it's a chance for us to turn back towards God. If we've never really believed in God, it's a chance for us to turn our lives back towards God and believe in Jesus. And so that's my invitation to you today. The way we conclude is will you turn back towards God? And will you believe and keep believing? In Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray together. God, thanks for your word today. A lot to take in. God, thank you that you, you want to leave no doubt about who Jesus is, what he can mean in our lives, and what, he means, what faith in him means for our eternity. So God, as we study these words in the weeks ahead, as we respond to your message today, We embrace your invitation to turn back to you and to believe. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.